The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop sending Carl photos of Mark Miller's sexual escapades and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 488 with guests Mark Miller and Billy Hollis, recorded live Sunday, August 30th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who would gladly pay you back Tuesday for a hamburger today, Carl Franklin. In my living room. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here with you. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy, howdy. We, uh, we have a, a special treat. Mark Miller is in the studio. Hey, Mark. Hi, Carl. How are you? And Mr. Hollis is out there. Billy? I am here. But before we get to that, let's jump into Better Know a Framework. All right. Today's Better Know Framework brought to you by Reverend Billy Hollis. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to talk about system.windows.forms.system information. System information's got a, a bunch of static properties that can be used to get information about the current system environment. All sorts of great stuff. Operating system settings, network availabilities, capabilities of hardware uh, installed on the system. There's a great sample. Um Font sizes, things like that. There's just a slew of stuff. And if I take a look at some of these properties, far too many to name, but some of my favorites. Cursor size. How about debug OS? Gets a value indicating whether the debug version of user EXE is installed. That You know, when would you think of that? Uh, double click time. Gets the maximum number of milliseconds that can elapse between a first click and a second click. For the OS to consider the mouse action, double click. Just tons of stuff like that. How about is selection fade enabled? Gets a value indicating where the selection fade effect 
is enabled. Carl, did, are, are there also values in here for the uh, the width of the uh, vertical scroll bar and and uh, and those are those in this as well? There are. I've used those actually in in some Island Windows Forms development. Vertical scroll bar, arrow height. Vertical yeah. scroll bar, thumb height, vertical resize border thickness. Yeah, I've used these as well. I find they're, they're really useful if you want to get something and, and make it like about as big as what you think the user's, uh, you know, the width of their scroll bar would be if they're if it's a vertical scroll bar. Uh, y- you can use this to kind of get a sense of how big should the thing be so they can see it. So if you're a VB programmer, you're looking in the my namespace, the my computer and all that stuff, and there's something that's not there that you really want, This is uh, this is where you want to look, system information. Thanks, Billy. So, uh, Richard, you have an email? Somebody's I do talking indeed, to us? and it's on f- show 476, which was our panel discussion at DevLink. That was a while back. Which uh, Mr. Hollis was involved in as well. The email goes as follows. Hey, Carl and Richard, I just finished show 476, Compelling Stuff. With all of the comments about how hard it is to get dev tools to the beginner, I was shocked that no one brought up Visual Studio Express or SQL Server Express. These are wonderful free tools that give you all you need to get started and more. I'm not a developer anymore myself, but I manage a team. I still dabble more or less as a hobby to keep current. I love the show and never miss an episode. I also encourage everyone to listen in, keep up the great work, and give a shout-out for Studio Express. Yeah, I, you know, I thought I brought that up. Maybe I didn't call it out by name, but I did say that if you really want to, you can you can write code without you know, having Visual Studio, you can get started. I think maybe I even went to, you can just use the compiler and Notepad. Yeah, you mentioned that part. That Yeah, you can work in Notepad. Because there was somebody who was talking about how other development languages allowed that. And right. you couldn't do that with .NET, which was not the case. There pretty much isn't any option that you don't have. And maybe that's the problem, is that there's so many decisions. But, uh, but that option is definitely there. Thank you very much for that yeah. email. Express tools are free, including, and the SQL Server Express has some specific limits on it, but they're not that dramatic. It is no. well worth, folks use SQL Server Express for a lot of things. It's a, it's a great tool. And by the time you outgrow it, you're probably making enough money where you can afford SQL Server. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, Studio is freely downloadable. Express editions are available for you to go get it at Microsoft.com slash Express. Hey, and if you're looking to upgrade your career, let us know. We have some really good uh, opportunities for you in uh, London, in Dubai, in Toronto, and in New York City. It was some really, really interesting and fun, creative people. So send me an email, carl at franklins.net, if you're interested in that. Hey, how'd you like to go to Las Vegas for free? How about free airfare, hotel, and admission to Dev Connections November 9th through the 12th at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas? Go to our website, .netrocks.com, and answer a question about the current show. No big forms to fill out. Just answer the question. We'll randomly pick one person's correct answer every week. And on October 29th, we'll announce the winner of the free trip to Dev Connections. You can answer one question a week, so go do it now. So Billy was actually going to be up here this weekend, uh, and um, for whatever re- I think you hurt yourself. Like you sprained your ankle or something? Yes, I sprained the ankle enough that it wasn't really worthwhile to get out and and do any traveling it hurt enough that uh it was just going to be difficult to yeah. to get all my luggage to the airport and i would have to drive from providence down to where you are so uh, so i thought it would be interesting to seeing as how mark is here and you'd be here sort of in the same town that uh, we get the two of you together and, and talk about wpf and silverlight and your experiences with that but uh doesn't matter we have telephones so so that's what uh what I thought we would talk about. You guys certainly have a lot of collective experience, and uh, have a lot of opinions. 
Well, it's been quite a ride the last three years. I, I, I tell people in some of the some of the sessions I do on WPF that this is one of those changes in thinking about software that is equivalent to the to the magnitude of moving from character based to bitmap GUIs or moving from procedural to object oriented that it really changes the whole way you look at software development. Uh if if you're in any area where you need to, to, to give the user something better than what they've been used to over the last 20 or 25 years, then now you've got the tools to do that. And that just opens up some whole new arenas for us to play in. Somebody brought up during that conference at DevLink that, uh, you know, there's a little hesitancy to learn WPF because, you know, the sort of, well, Microsoft made this big sea change going from GDI to WPF and you know, is there, are, are we going to be in for another change? You know, am I going to learn all this stuff? And then, oh, now we're on to something else. And my when I actually sat down and thought, you know, my first reaction was, yeah, I wonder if that's going to happen. But as I sat down and thought about it, how long did, did Windows GDI, you know, raster-based graphics last? I, I don't see that changing anytime soon, especially because all the new operating systems UI is completely dependent on it. Right. It's kind of like making the, the same statement would be, or a similar statement would be, you know, wh- wh- why do you go to .NET? Because it's going to it's gonna change soon, right? You know, yeah, it's, right. it's that kind of thing. It's just the .NET framework's not going to change. It's just going to build on it, right? right. In, in, in that sense, the things we depend on are, are going to still be there. And I think you're going to find the same thing with WPF. I think in general, from a from a consumer standpoint, it's very well engineered and it's it's that's just going to move forward and we're going to build on that. I, I think it's highly unlikely we're going to see significant, significant changes where they pull the whole carpet out from underneath yeah. us and say, okay, now there's a whole new thing you've got to learn. It's so fundamental. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, one of the key parts that people don't get if they haven't really worked with it hands-on is that this technology, look, I can tell you plenty of things about WPF that I think, especially in the tool set and some of the, some of the things that you have to do hands-on, that can be frustrating. But at a deeper level, when you start to look at the engineering and the engine there, it's an absolute work of art. It is some of the nicest technology I've ever seen in a long career. And because that core is so good, because that kernel is so good, uh, because that, that basic engine is so good, I think it's got a lot of life in it. I think there's a lot of room on top of that to do interesting things to make it more accessible to a lot of people. And I think the way it looks to the typical consumer might be different, say, in five years from now than it is now. But that core, that core is good, and I think it's going to be with us quite a while. And you said something that intrigued me. It's a really a work of art. I thought, well, I really couldn't say that um, so much about GDI. No, you couldn't. Right. GDI worked, but it was really constrained to the the 16-bit environment. I mean, there was so much stuff in there that was for older versions of architecture. Right. I think I think you're getting pushback in in two areas. One is the the change. It's a, it's different from what we were doing. Right. Um. I think that if you actually if you were if you didn't have any experience with GDI and and nothing with WPF and you looked at them side by side, you'd you'd absolutely choose WPF. Yeah. And if you were at WPF and you had to go to GDI, there'd be a tremendous amount of pushback because of yeah. of the of how much harder it is to work with it and to get the things done that we need to do. And I think the second area of of pushback is in is in the tools, right? You've got so you've got you know one you've got learning curve and two you've got you've got tools that when they first came out were um were were poor were were difficult to work with and and I think that early adopters who went in there and experienced that came out of that. Uh, some of those came out of that with uh, frustration. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that, from my perspective, I thought that really, really sucked. I, I hated that because 
Um, like Billy, I saw the brilliance, you know, I, 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 in, in the architecture of the framework. And I, and, and, and I was thinking, geez, why did Microsoft not invest as much as they should have as a, in the tools? The tools mm. should have been perfect when they came yeah. out. Yeah. Because the, from my perspective, the architecture was as close to perfect as anything I've ever seen. You know, getting back to the sort of core issue around this, we did it uh, when we did that show, Carl, in uh, in Vancouver at DevTeach. The guy stood up and said, "Can I make a form right using the designer? You know, can I build my what I used to be able to do in in before .NET and with .NET?" But it where's the demo? Like, it was it was where's the simple demo? Kind yeah, of thing, right. It, every every demo you see of WPF today. The guy still works in the XAML. In XAML, right. And that, I think, is the barrier here for most developers. I, where's my designer? I would argue that Studio 2010 is that designer. What do you think, Billy? Well, I, I was going to say, I was just going to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I don't actually agree with that. I don't, maybe every demo you see, they do that. And I think part of the reason for that is because demos, it's super tedious to go into a designer and fill out, you know, click on a property piece, fill out a value, click on another one. Mm -hmm. I've done that in one session, and, and it sucked because it was so hard to keep people excited as, you, as you're moving through, and and, yeah. and and it's very tedious to do that in a demo. But but in real life, what I will often do is I'll do a mix. I'll, I'll be working in XAML, and then I'll move over to Blend, and I'll get something complicated like an animation or something set up, copy that, bring it back over into Visual Studio, paste it in, something like that. So, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to know what you guys think about Studio 2010 in terms of the designer. Is this the designer that we've been waiting for for WPF? It's not the designer I've been waiting for, but it's the designer a lot of people have been waiting for. If they've been looking for that straightforward, let's create a form, let's get something up pretty quickly, and and worry more about the advanced capabilities later. I think it's a whole lot closer to that than anything we've seen up to now. Visual Studio 2008, for example had no designer support of any sort for data binding. Right. So if you were going to do data binding, you were going to be typing XAML. There just wasn't there weren't any two ways about it. And now we've got the, a good data binding designer capability built into 2010. You've also got a lot of capabilities in 2010 for going and choosing things that perhaps a designer has created for you. So when you get beyond that initial demo, which is going to be fairly straightforward looking and isn't going to dramatically look differently from what people are used to today, when you start moving into the advanced capabilities, you can't really do those advanced capabilities without editing XAML in 2010. You yeah. still need Blend for that. But once they've been done in Blend, you can pick them from 2010. You can say, I would like to apply this style. I would like to use this resource or something. And that, I think, is going to be a big step forward because what it enables is plug-in template capabilities, plug-in plug -in schemes, plug-in skins, so that you just make something a part of the project. And now the guy in the UI is in the business of choosing from options instead of having to make things up from scratch. And I think that's going to be a pretty, pretty dramatic step in the right direction. Just one note the, on something Richard said a while ago, and then you can go on, uh, is that, you know, when, when Richard says the tooling pretty much sucks and, and, and it sucked, I, you know, I sort of tried to figure out why that is. And, and it's pretty obvious that from Microsoft's perspective, they got WPF out the door very, very, very early for developers to look at when all you could do was XAML. You know, they, they, they wanted to show off what Longhorn development, they called it back then, was going to be like in for the UI. And they got it out the door before it was even ready to ship beta. The tools obviously have to come much later than that. I mean, just I think it's more of an, a manifestation of Microsoft's 
willingness to share technology early more than it is that they were slacking on the tools. Well, you've also got release schedule for Visual Studio as well, right? They couldn't get the tools in. The, yeah. the time they yeah, wanted yeah, the yeah. tools to be out and to be available was between releases. And so I, I think that that's why – so you've got Blend existing, right? And and Blend comes out yeah. and it's got a pretty decent, right. you know, it's got some good design environment kinds of things. And then yep. you go to their their XAML editor and it sucks compared to Visual Studio. And you have this 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 weird dichotomy between where one tool does one mm. thing good, well and the other one does the other well, and they're both from the same company and they're coming out at different out of sync release points. And it's just this weird kind of kind of thing that you you're immersed in. As you- and throw on top of it the Mix conference versus PDC conference versus yeah yeah it's. You're, you're, you're kind of, I, I, I think the, I think that most people are thinking, hey, let's have, you know, everything, everything from Blend inside of Visual Studio. Let's have one release. Let's have one, one thing that, and, you know, the other thing too that, that, that is, is interesting is that is extensibility, right? Visual Studio is re- relatively extensible, so you can add, uh, you can put, put add ins mm-hmm. in it, but, but um, blend extensibility is uh, is 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 weaker and uh, and and was certainly non-existent when in uh, in in the earlier versions. Yeah. But if you look at the if you look at the choices, wouldn't it be better for them to in the early days focus on making sure that that engine was right, the architecture was right, et cetera? Absolutely. And 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 get that because if they hadn't gotten that right, right. And their tools had been good. They 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 would have really been storing up a lot of trouble for the future. Yeah, that would have been a huge problem. But 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 those are those are different teams, though, Billy. I mean, I I I actually believe that they. Yes, it's okay to bring those those things out, but give give you early access to the technology. But I really felt with this that they should have they should have waited before they started pushing it until the tools were really really good. That's what I I I, I yes. Really, you really you really wish that you had never seen WPF two two years before you beta. I, I wish they hadn't said this is blend released, you know, 1.0. This is the release version of it, you know, mm. b- before it was really ready. I think mm. that there, there were just a lot of mistakes. I think the team was too small. I think that they didn't have enough um, resources put into it. Uh, and and they didn't, in my opinion, it, it really g- mm. gave me the impression that they did not value. They just did not value mm. the uh, um, the technology like they should have. I thought the technology was awesome. The framework behind it was awesome. And it really struck me as as just too little resources put into it. Well, I think a related problem to that is the if you consider the people involved, how would they have known how to design how to how to create a great designer when for the most part the people we're talking about are not UI experts themselves? I think there had to be a certain amount of experimentation on how this technology was actually going to be applied in the real world before they could be tipped off as to what things to put in their tool set that really mattered. Now I, I would have I'd argue that, that from from your point of view they should have been going out and getting those people. I think there should have been a lot more people involved that were more from that designer-oriented way of thinking earlier in the process. But mm. the people that were involved, I, I don't know that they would have known what the ideal designer, visual designer, looked like for WPF. Uh, even if you'd given them unlimited resources, I don't know that they could have produced anything that would have been optimal. This gets back to that basic concept here, which is WPF came with this new idea of a paradigm that you have a designer making your apps you know in the gdi world we got a document from microsoft that said you will build your apps in battleship gray and here's how they should look file goes here and help goes here and you know we all got that as developers there's no book like that for wpf there was this idea i gotta go find a guy in a black turtleneck and here's his piece of software and you guys go play nice now 
Yeah, it, we, I was talking to Scott Stanfield about this a while back, actually. And I think what you're going to see in this world is, to a certain extent, you'll be looking at Silverlight and WPF apps and sense that the style means that they came out of a certain group of people, that the applications will vary enough that you'll be able to pick up on stylistic hints from various groups so that an app produced by Vertigo is not going to look the same as an app produced by some other firm that does some of the design capabilities because there's there's such tremendous degrees of freedom. So I don't know that that book is ever going to exist in this space. So here's another reference point that could exist, which is, Office. A WPF version of Office could become the look that people latch on to because most customers don't know what they want their apps to look like. So if they could look at Office and go, I want my app to look like that, then we'd have somewhere to go. Except that I think there will be four or five, instead of the, the, the Windows world, the GDI world, where there were only a couple of major possibilities that you might look at, you would say, oh, well, the Outlook style works, or maybe this sort of MDI thing over here works. Um, in com- contrast to that limited number of possibilities, I think we're going to see a broader range of things. And certainly, if Office goes that way, that would be one big one. But I think that there will be several more for different ranges of users and different types of apps. But you're right that people are trying to seize on to that because, as you guys know, one of the uh, my own application, we did a .NET Rocks TV episode about it, over a year ago, and I've been astounded by the number of people who have basically said, well, we looked at that and decided we probably couldn't do any better, so we're just copying what you did. And that shows that latent demand that people have for something that points them and shoves them in the right direction. Yeah, reference application. So, I mean, I'm glad, I like your app, Billy. I'm glad it's a reference app that gives people a, a set of parameters to work in as the way they want their app to work. And I think you really showed us some of the first hints of, a more productive environment using this kind of UI. I, I, I would agree with that, but what bothers me is it was developed for a specific set of circumstances, a specific type of users. It was not intended to be a broad-based reference application. It's a decent reference application for a certain segment of data-oriented business apps, and, but I, I think that people are, are applying it uncritically, and that bothers me a bit. My sense is that there is a book that can be written, but it's it's not like the the book we used to see where you'd say, here's the picture, here's the battleship gray, here's how things should be lined up. I think it's more along the lines of, um, you know, uh, having to do with where eyes are attracted to and levels of uh, of contrast. And and the, and as an example, we, we might imagine a, a list of information where I have labels on the left with like the, the system information we were talking at the beginning of the show, right, where one of the labels might be a width of the vertical scroll bar. And to the right, I might have a value there. And that, that, imagine a table like that. Well, the labels to the left might be less important information, and the information to the right might be more important information. So what we might have is a book that says something, the more important information should have higher contrast. And and I can go from that book and I can imagine a, a way of designing applications where I line up my data and I say, this data is not so relevant. And then I say, but this data is very important. And now that I've tagged the data with its its relevance, I can now apply a theme or a style to that and, and choose from many different styles and themes. And because it knows how important the data is, it highlights it hmm. in that particular style or theme. Yeah. And so I can go choose from a wide variety of looks, but they all essentially work the same way. My eyes are drawn towards the important data. And if I need the less important data, I can certainly seek it out and find it and read it. Well, I would agree that that book certainly could be written. And there are some interesting 
but it would be more general than the book we were talking about earlier. About it, w- it would be a somewhat less prescriptive. It would be more about general principles of this is the way sure. you use animation effectively. This is how you preserve white space and why that does a good job. This is this is how you use gradient fills and color effectively. It would not be so much about use this exact gradient fill, but it would be helping people understand well enough to choose for themselves what kind of an animation exactly. or gradient fill works for their particular circumstances. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their Rad Control Suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support. And as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. The biggest question I have in my mind as I listen to you guys talk from the, from the listener's perspective is, what can I now do? And maybe I haven't seen Visual Studio 2010 at all. Maybe I haven't really seen Blend. I've just been listening and watching a few demos and stuff. What what do I do in what? Like, what is the WPF designer in Visual Studio good for, and what is Blend good for, and do I need to use them both? Do Should I really be looking for some sort of designer person to help me with Blend, or should I, you know, if I, have, if I think I have some good enough graphics chops, can I do it myself? Those are the kinds of questions I'm thinking. Let's start off with... What do you? What can Visual Studio do by itself well, and what doesn't it do well? The main place that you really have to be drawn to Visual Studio is anything that involves code, and that includes a lot of things you would think of as being UI interaction sort of things. So, for example, some of the visual signals you might give to people in the UI would be done in code with some decision making in, in, in that in, embedded in that code through something called a value converter. You can't do that in Blend. Uh, as many visual capabilities as Blend has, there are things that it absolutely won't do. Anything that's code-centric is where you need to be over in the Visual Studio side of things. Anything that concerns animation and color and uh, and even layout, I think Blend does a better job there than Visual Studio at this point. So what we have found in general and in, in the projects we've worked on is that we start First of all, in prototypes, Blend is absolutely the tool you almost always want to use. Are you talking Sketchflow, too? Sketchflow, as well as just creating real prototypes. We've been doing prototypes in Blend long before Sketchflow was ever thought about. Right. So prototyping is is very effectively done in Blend, much more so than in Visual Studio. Okay. You might occasionally have to drop into Visual Studio for a couple of little fill-in-the-code things, but then as the cycle of development goes forward, the amount we use blend starts to drop. And by the time we get into 
fairly serious development uh, of, of the program overall. We're now in the Visual Studio, and the tweaks we make to the UI can be made pretty effectively there. And now, only occasionally, do we need to drop back to Blend. So for any project that's really going to use these technologies effectively, you pretty much have to have both. But not everybody on the team has to have both. And the amount that you use them varies depending on where you are in the project. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's that's similar to my. Experience. So you can do simple data binding in Blend, but in a real world application, do you do, can you get a buy with that, or uh, do you are you having to wire up code in Visual Studio to? Yeah, I think you're always at some point wiring up code, right? You've got some business logic in the background. It's it's you could be bound to to a business logic layer, though. Can you not? Well, one of the one of the principles is you'd like for there to be a minimal amount of code in the actual XAML pages in right. the code behind. You don't want to to be really heavy there. Now, I'm not an absolutist about that. There are folks who would like you to strive for having zero code there. And right. I suppose if your project is big enough and you want to go to the trouble of implementing some kind of MVVM framework to allow that, yeah. then that, that could make some sense. But for the smaller projects, which is, I think, what people are going to get involved in, First, yeah, it's okay to have some code in the code behind. You just don't want a whole lot. So you don't want to have fundamentally a two-tier design here. You'd like right. to have some kind of interesting layer that did know more about the data than the UI did. That way you could change things in the UI out for a different view without a whole lot of work. You might have to do a little bit of transplanting of code or something. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think that you want to be too heavy, but it's okay to put certain amounts of, of, of functionality directly inside the UI, especially when people are first getting started. You really don't want to introduce, look, you're already introducing a huge shift in the way you think about things right. for, for these folks. And, and if you're going to layer three or four more things on top of that, that are patterns and architectures and such that you expect them to learn too, you've just you know, you've increased the side, the height of the cliff that they have to climb, and that means that there's a certain number of people who aren't going to make it. So from my perspective, when people first get started, it's okay to be a little bit suboptimal in your first app if that helps you understand enough about how to use these technologies effectively that you sort things out later uh, in a better fashion. Well, you can do a lot with data binding, can't you? I mean, you can, you can bind to a class that will do triggers and cascading enabling and disabling of components you know based on things that happen and your code is deciding what gets enabled or disabled or or any of that kind of stuff based on the input you know the rules in the class may access the data as well but i mean i guess i'm saying you still have to how write far that class, can you, though. you but yeah you're going to be you're going to be building those classes in visual studio no doubt about it but once those are done, can you can you do all your UI to business layer interaction just with data binding? You yeah. can do a good deal of it. You can do most of it, but not everybody is going to have that complex a data layer. Some people are just going to throw an entity framework out there or a type data set or something, and there's not going to be a huge amount of logic that comes along with the data. For CRUD apps. Certainly. Yeah. But I think the dance you're getting to, Carl, and I don't need to put words in your mouth here, is how many of my developers can avoid blend entirely and just build their apps in studio precisely still? and how many guys are going and and then when if you're only going to live in blend can you live in only blend like I, I think most folks are worried 
that they're not going to get this bounce back and forth between these two apps right. right. Yeah, the other thing is, I think that I think that your question about do I need a designer, I think the problem is is that that question is going to be around for a while. And as long as that question is around, I think you're going to it's it's kind of like Billy says, the cliff is is too high or too expensive to get over. Mm. It means we got to hire somebody else. We got to change the way we work. Right. And I and I really think that the you know when we were talking earlier about this idea of being able to say here's what data is important, here's what's not. You know, couple with you know, add to that the ability to say this is the order in which I want my data to appear in, and and this is the, these are groups of data that should be appear appear contextually together. Yeah, and I think we can get to a point where we really, really don't need a designer, where we can have sophisticated uh, layout arrangement uh, tools that basically allow the developer to who knows the data, right, who says this is the data, this is the important pieces, these are the things I want to group, and uh, and then says, okay, well, here's a suggested layout for you, and because once you get to that point, then there's all the individuals out there who, you know, the, the, the one-man shops that can't afford to have a designer, all the teams that, you know, don't want to work, bring a designer in or mm. can't afford it because it's not in their budget, all those guys can suddenly come in and say, okay, let's, let's – we, we can do it. We can well, what you're making me it. think of is Developer Express. I mean, you're a tool company. Are you guys – are the tool vendors building tools that, um, that have some of these – designs baked in that you can just pick and choose from yeah we, we are we're not at the point where i've just described it yet where i've said look here's here's where the you know that kind of imagined scenario where the developer says you know this is let me describe right. my data to you yeah, yeah yeah and the value of it and now you give me back the layout and i can choose from a bunch of different you know artistically created themes or styles that actually look good right so so there th- that second thing you just mentioned though we're 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 very close to that in fact yeah. there are are there are things where you can go ahead and, and choose different styles once the you te- have the layout and the tell right? guys do too i mean the, but what the, you guys are describing is cascading style sheets like you're describing css zen garden right where here's a set of data tagged a particular way apply different templates to it Right, and sure. being able to purchase those templates instead of having to do the artwork yourself is what is what I'm getting at. Sure, you can do that. Yeah, and and I was thinking in those terms with with Billy's app is that there Billy's now our designer, right? That we, we can live with that design. Now we don't need a designer. We can go forward building our app and and staying out of blend. Well, and I guess the next question, Richard, is how much of that can be just pulled off the shelf, and how much has to be how much design work has to be customized depending on what the form is doing and what the elements on the form are. You know, it's not just a matter of setting colors and things. It's a matter of functionality and a matter of form. Developers get really excited when there's a lot of stuff they can pull off the shelf, right? It's, it's it, as we're moving, you know, forward in GDI world, you had uh, uh, a number of icon companies that would, that a lot of developers would speak uh, enthusiastically about because they say, look at all these, you know, great icon button yeah, images. It's so hard that. for me to create my own. Right. And no, I've got these. I, I really think that that market exists right now. And the more Clip people that, art, for that, example, too. Yeah. The more people that jump into WPF, the more the, you're going to start seeing these companies that are selling themes and styles right. and, and so that, that you can uh, apply those to your application. But how, but here's the question. How much of that has to be customized for your app? I mean, is it truly just a, overall visual style or is it layout as well like layout of buttons and controls on a form is root can is that as important yeah, we're, we're, well we're not I think it, I think it's pretty important, but I don't think we're at a point yet where where you've got anybody that's going to sell that to you and show no. you how to do that. That's just not that that we're we're like years but, away from that. But it doesn't require artistic know how. It, it requires layout of controls on a form doesn't require artistic mind. It requires functional mind. It requires right. like that is something that developer can do. Right. There uh, there is a set number of UI patterns. You know, there's only right. so many of them. That's right. true. 
Right. But there are, but think about it though, Richard, like, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about right now while, while, while Carl is asking me the question is, okay, so at what point does my, my, my number of controls, my data get so big that I want to use one of those patterns that like folds it up or, you know, the, the more, you know, button that allows yeah. me to see more or less or, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Where, you know, at what point am I, am I going to have that threshold? Am I going to make those decisions? Those are developer decisions. Those are developer usually, decisions. usually come in. Yeah. Um, and, and also the, the, the other thing that's always challenging here is designers, most designers uh, that come out of uh, design school don't have a sense of things like like focus. No, right? You know, yeah. control focus and and uh, and tab order and and right. and and also just a sense of hey, we're interacting with it with this form and it's maybe changing as we're interacting with it. Yeah, it's kind of moving and changing its state over time. That's that's most of these guys I, I I'm imagining are, are are pretty well versed in you know two D artwork and maybe three D animation, but not a sense of interaction. Action. Really, that's I think yes. not taught too much in design school right now yet. That's the that's the key word there is interaction, and I yeah. was going to jump in and talk about that. the interaction patterns are what people are going to need some help with because that's one of the more expensive parts. I can tell you from from experience, if you're going to to go at it from scratch and prototype your way through interaction patterns, that takes time and that takes real talent, and and it very very often is not going to be a practical thing for somebody, particularly in small shops, to do. So what they need instead is choices, half a dozen interaction patterns or something, navigation shells that, that you plug things into that have you know, some switchable thing that, that gives them the different interaction patterns that animate things when they move in and out and that hold on to things and give you some kind of a method to bring them back later. That's the sort of thing that the typical developer needs to get boot, bootstrapped into this. Prism tried to move in that direction, and they did a lot of the plumbing for plugging stuff in, but they did very little for the interactivity of how these things actually performed and looked on the screen, and that's where people need a lot more help. In the middle of that, Billy, I was thinking, uh, we got to write a book, man. <laughs> I have act- I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, actually. Not just a book. Let me, let me give you another blue sky idea that I had that really troubles me. And maybe some, of, maybe some of Carl's listeners can help me get through my conundrum on this. Because in order to do this sort of thing properly, to use a lot of these new capabilities, developers have to stretch themselves in some interesting ways. Now, not, ever, not everybody is going to want to do that. Not everybody is sort of suited to do that. Some people are sort of too left-brain, too, too procedural-centric to ever get into more of the soft side of things. But I've thought about the fact that we do need a supply of such people, and I have kind of the elements. I actually did an outline of a class that said, here are ways to develop more of those soft skill, right brain design oriented things. This class would be from a developer point of view. It would be for developers, and it'd be taught by somebody like me who's kind of lived in both worlds. And I think it could have enormous benefit, but the big problem with it is this. I know that some fraction of people who take such a class will get virtually nothing out of it. That they just, their minds just don't, don't run that way. And because of that, it, it, causes me a, a, a lot of hesitation to even think about trying to move in that direction and offering something that people pay money for that they end up then not getting anything out of. And I'm not sure if there's any solution to that. Mark Wilson Thomas up at Microsoft suggested a pre-quiz to try to evaluate people and see if their minds kind of work that way, which I think might be an interesting approach. But I'd like to see that happen. I just It scares me to think about teaching something people take and then walk away shaking their heads thinking that was useless. 
You know, Billy, I remember teaching introductory developer classes for people who were just learning to program the first time. And every class, every single class I ever taught like that, there was a couple of people who's like, I'm not going to get this. My mind doesn't work this way. Yeah. And the real challenge was identifying those people early and letting them know it's acceptable. That, hey, you know what? Your head doesn't work this way. You're in the wrong place. You know, we, we, we take it for granted, us pack of geeks here, that programming is just a natural thing. I'm telling you, there's a huge raft of people out there who just don't think that way. We're the weirdos. And that's why I come to the show. And we are the weird. <laughs> we are the weirdos. <laughs> hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, I think about, Mark, your session on, on science and good UI design, that mentality of breaking down how people's eyes move and how yeah. they interact with the, that's a very interesting way of thinking about that problem. It's a scientific way of thinking about art. Yeah, and it, it, it appeals, I think, to developers because it gives them something that they can wrap their heads around and say, oh, yeah, okay, now I got it. Right, right. And it also, the other thing I like about it, too, is it it it, it, it empowers developers when they're speaking to designers because often... You know, designers can say, oh, you know, this is, I went to design school and this is, you know, this is why this looks great. And, you know, what are your credentials for even questioning this? Not that developers would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they would. Now, I'm going to try an experiment at Dev Connections this year along this line because I have a session there called The Whole Brain Developer. Oh. That starts to tiptoe in this direction. And, and I regard it very much as an experimental session. And uh, we're going to see see how how that turns out. I think I'm going to learn a lot of lessons, no matter what, in trying to introduce some of these concepts to people at a typical technology oriented developer conference. What I'm what I think is that you have people who are left brain or right brain, and they're always trying to compensate for the side that they're not strongest in, with by using the side they are strongest in. Denial. I use denial. <laughs> no, what I mean is. What I, I guess what I mean is that, you know, typically the guys who are really good and who are teaching this stuff are guys like Billy and Mark who sort of have the left brain, right brain thing going on. But there's so many who are just on the left that are programmers because, you know, they're, they, they're, they're scientists. They're computer scientists and the, the whole things looking good and the whole art thing is just not something they even have a tolerance for, let sure. alone a desire to learn. Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things you can do, too, though, is you can explain why it's important, right? You, you, those kind of people, you need justification. You need to somehow connect the, the, the reason for them to do that, to, to invest in that with what, what, what they get out of it themselves. And I usually connect that through, you know, financial. I usually say, well, look, if you have an application that is, uh, that's uh, uh, easier to use, you, that'll mean your customers will come back. You'll have more customers. They'll be a little more loyal. Um, and if conversely, if your competition beats you out to that, then you, you'll have fewer customers, and that is somehow going to relate to your income. So usually I try to try to make that connection that way. I think most people – most people do have a reason to care because it's going to make things either – it's going to improve their income. It's going to make their company run more efficiently. 
make their customers happier. Those those things are generally the outcomes of of in, investing in in uh, in good UI. So well, it depends entirely though on the number of users and the importance of the information and such. If you have a, a program that's used inside uh, of a corporation and it's only used by half a dozen people and it's not something they use every, uh, every day or maybe an hour a day or, or whatever, you're going to have a very, very tough time now cost-justifying the investment to make that highly interactive and more productive for them because the numbers true. just aren't going to work. No, true. But if you've got 2,000 people, now you, set, you promote 5% productivity and you've all of a sudden got 100 full-time equivalents that you've saved, exactly. and, and that's huge. So you kind of got to know where inside, the, inside that the, uh, the the breakdown comes. If you're a commercial software vendor, though, that's probably not the calculus you make. Instead, you, you, what you were talking about, Mark, is that it, you don't want to be in the position of your competition having gotten there first. You, if because I when I demo my app sometimes to people who are in the commercial world, I kind of ask them to imagine. Suppose that your com- competitor has an app that looks like this. Right. You got to understand that people like those apps, and they don't even necessarily know why. It's it's operating at kind of a subconscious level with the animation and the colors and such. So people people have an attachment and affinity for that kind of a style, and they can't even necessarily verbalize it. So if your competition has that, and they've been in there and demoed the week before, you don't want to be coming in there the week after with a plain old last generation app because all of a sudden now it looks obsolete it looks clunky and they can't even necessarily tell you why they like the other one better but they do right but, you know billy i was just going to add to what you were saying about your about the um uh, the, the where how do you make the decision with regard to whether or not you're going to justify the the resources in there even within your application once you get to a point where you say yes we should invest money in this you want to use that same formula in terms of what parts of the application are we going to invest in the ui um, is it going to be, you know, the options dialogue or is it going to be the main editor that they spend all their time in, that sort of thing? So, again, you, that same formula I think is very, very useful um, even with, you know, once you've made that decision on a kind of a microscopic level. Yeah, we will often prototype pieces of an application, just subsections of a screen for a particular functionality. And we may do multiple prototypes to get a feel for which one works best. But we only do that when you're talking about that's right in the mainstream of what the person does who uses the app. That's that's something the user is going to use pretty often. We would never do that for a configuration screen. Hey, what what does it take to take a, let's say, a Photoshop person or somebody who's uh, good with graphics who maybe doesn't, who's never designed applications before and sit them down with Blend as a developer and teach them what they need to know about uh, about how applications work, you know, because from I, I I really don't buy into the fact that all these left brain developers are now suddenly going to do all their own design in Blend and all that stuff. I really don't. I think you really have to have that that sort of men, the the predilection towards that uh, both brain developer thing to to be able to do that effectively. So I I do see a lot of designers moving into this space, but. Let's say that you, the listener, are tasked with sitting down with somebody who knows a little bit. Maybe they've done some web design, which is probably what where you're going to find these people, right? They've done website design. They know how to build forms and stuff, so they, they're familiar with this. What do you have to teach that person? 
We've done that in, in our company, actually. We've taken designers and, and set them down with Blend and, and essentially trained them with a developer next to them so that they could be uh, proficient at, uh, at, at producing uh, the themes and styles for us. So what we, do they need to know? I don't know. I, I'm yeah, like, maybe they need to know Blend, but what do they need to know that, that just learning Blend doesn't teach them? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think that the, the, the focus thing is still something I think it, it's not really that obvious of an issue when you're, when you're there. Focus, in, like of, what field has focus? Yeah. I, from, our, from our perspective, we, we really don't use our designers as developers where they're really laying out UI. We really, we really say, look, here's, here's Blend. Here's how you create animations. Here's how you, mm. here's how you um, go in and, and change templates and things like that. That's yeah. really what we dipped our, our what, what we did with our designers, what we did in, with them. And, and we had a, a uh, developer side by side when they were going in and, and training, and I, as I recall, it took about a week or two before they were producing um, uh, things that we could consume by the rest of the team. So, Billy, would you say the developer starts in Blend in Sketchflow, and then hands that off to a, a designer in Blend, and they can work on the design while you're taking that Sketchflow project and working in Visual Studio, and then you guys just meet up later? I think there's a subsection of application for which that workflow might go reasonably well. if Because, now I understand I've only spent about, at this point, 10 or 12 hours with Sketchflow, so I'm, I, I don't count myself as the expert on it. But when I look at the samples and I look at the capabilities it offers, it, uh, it seems to work very well when you have a website mentality of how you want to do your interactivity. That you think in terms of pages and links between pages and you end up with a graph of what the pages look like and how they relate to one another. Sketchflow does that pretty well. If you're going to to do your application with that kind of an interactivity pattern, then I think what you described is probably a, a feasible thing to do. But there are other interactivity patterns and we tend to to work more on the navigation shell pattern where the shell takes responsibility for a lot of things hmm. and handles a lot of the interactivity. And Sketchflow doesn't help us as much there. Sketchflow will help us do some very early prototypes to kind of show the major pieces and going from one to another but then that sketch flow model isn't extensible to what we're actually going to do in production for those kinds of applications. A navigation shell, you mean using the navigation features built into WPF, like with the forward and back buttons? And Well, it, we don't use the built-in features. We do our own. Basically, this is, this is kind of an architectural thing from my perspective. If you get above, let's call it 30 or 40 screens that you're going to be working with, you need some kind of navigation manager yeah. uh, to take care of things. We use a URI-based scheme so that the um, the individual elements have some kind of URI uh, description, and, and that allows any part of the app to attach to any of the other part of the app mm. by just saying, this is the URI I'd like you to load. So basically, your navigation shell is sorting that out. It yeah. knows how to take a URI and turn it into a piece of the screen and where to put that on the screen and how to store it when it's not being used and bring it back later, et cetera. And by URI, you're just talking about a, a, a unique name, really. A, a, yeah, a unique identifier. Yeah, we yeah. found similar deficiencies in, in the built-in navigation. I mean, it's, if you think about it, like most browsers, right, you've got forward, back, and then you've got the ability also now to drop down a history, right, yeah. so you can see some of those entries. And you have also favorites, which is to some degree also a navigation support, right? Yeah. 
Um, the, you know, if you just start with just the basics, right, forward and back, you realize pretty quickly that as, as your data that the customer is, is viewing becomes more complex, you really need more than that. You need things that are similar to what are showing up in browsers, being able to do yeah. histories, also being able to mark jump, favorite pages, jump quickly jump to those quickly things, find, to find yeah. things in the history. So I, I totally agree with Billy that this, this concept of this kind of master navigation control that has this, you know, ability to just plug it into many different apps and but have very sophisticated abilities is something that I think everybody needs and it's kind of like a it's an interaction pattern. Mm. It really is. It's this this kind of navigation control with all the you know all the things we just mentioned, and I think more 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 as well. Do, are either of you going to publish the that f- sort of framework as uh, something that people can use? I'm doing a very simple version in Silverlight. That by the time this airs, I think I will be done with it since my site's already done. I'm just polishing it up. It doesn't have anything related to data in it, but it does have a, a miniature navigation framework that is URI-based. It, it would not be sufficient for a very large application, but I think it could be expanded. It's something to kind of show people in a very simple way what the pattern looks like. Have you written an article on it? No. I've just fi- I'm, I'm just putting the finishing details oh, on cool. it now. I couldn't really finish the URI-based stuff until Silverlight 3 came out. Ah. Uh. Yeah, we, I'm pretty sure we have a control that does this. I actually wrote a control like this. It was, I think, w- was the prototype for a control that we're offering uh, about three years ago, I think, mm. about two, three years ago. Wow. So, so, um, and, and I can probably find that source code out somewhere. And, and if I can, I'll give it to you and you can put a link to it. And just because I think it's interesting in the sense that it you is, have yeah. a, you have a control that has the ability to, to support forward and backwards and, and things like that. It was, it was actually pretty simple at the time. It wasn't as sophisticated as I, as, as the, uh, as I just, uh, described. But guys, it feels like we're sliding into a nice wrap up here. Uh, any final words? Um, I'll say I, I just wanted to, to, to throw out that. Um, well, I don't know if this is this. I don't know if this is interesting or not to you guys, but this is something that I was recently working on with WPF. And and this was with regard to CodeRush because one of the things that we support with CodeRush is extensibility so people can write plugins for it. Mm. And one of the things that we've always tried to strive for is uh, is that is one source code base from the start of the product all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. And and uh, now with the change into uh, WPF because we're going into Visual Studio 2010, um, it, it threatens to break that, right? Because we've got, you know, the, if you've seen it, you've seen we do a lot of painting on the editor and stuff like that. Yeah. And and um, I was recently meeting with the team, and we decided what we were going to do is we were going to uh, continue our, our our single source code base. But what that meant then is we had to have our painting code work on both GDI and in WPF. And so what we did is we created um, a, a framework to actually support that. And and the framework uh, is – what we had to do is we had to go back to GDI and revise it so it worked a little more like WPF does because mm. GDI is simply like, here's a graphics you know, uh, object. Go paint on it now. And, yeah. it, and you get that a lot, right? Here it comes again, and now paint on it again, right, if you need to yeah. update the image on it. And WPF is kind of like, hey, um, here's a, let me throw a rectangle at you, and you just worry about painting it. I'm going right. to put this out there. So what we had to do is we had to basically come up with the primitives that we needed to paint and change the model – and put a wrapper around both WPF and, and GDI mm. so that the plugin developer is insulated from it. So the plugin developer just says, hey, I want to strike through this code right mm. here. And that's my preview hint. I want to show the code that's going to be deleted. So I'm going to add the strike through. And that's all I do. And I just add the strike through and I'm pretty much insulated from it. And so 
So that was something interesting that we did. And I think that that kind of is interesting to folks out there who might be in – I'm not sure if anybody out there is out there, but who might want to actually be moving from GDI to WPF and thinking what happens – You know, maybe I would just want to insulate and work on both, have one source base work on both. I know that uh, I know that our, our sponsor, Telerik, has tools that look like WPF that are totally Windows Forms. We have the same thing. Is it, yeah. I, I've been fooled by our own demos. I've been looking yeah. at them. I'm like, is that WPF? And they're like, no, no that's, that's GDI. I'm like, yeah. ah. Yeah, there's it. also that Codeplex project out there that's WinForms to WPF because I really like the idea that folks could just port an existing app to WPF, don't change the UI paradigm at all. But now that I'm in WPF, I could start adding to it. Sure. If you can figure out what it's doing. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Because it's been my experience that those sort of upgrade wizards generate a lot of crappy code that's very difficult to understand. Very challenging to work with. Yeah. It, it, it just feels to me like we need to lower the barrier further and that this, the, get just getting your app to live in the WPF code base has got to be step one. Like the chance, I just feel like people aren't going to take existing apps and put a lot of time into them to move them to WPF right now. That it's you've got to make that easy for them to go there, and then they, you know, when that barrier is lowered, then you start showing bits of the potential of WPF in your app. Mm. There's also a lot of great videos out there on uh, Channel Nine and on MSDN. Uh, what is the uh, WindowsClient.net? I think Billy is that the uh, website where. Where, where the WPF stuff tends to show yeah. up, as well as some of the Windows Form stuff is still there, too. Yeah. And don't forget DNR TV. Ah, yeah. Well, DNR TV, we've done uh, really good intros to Blend on DNR TV and also, in, you know, a lot about XAML. Uh, yeah, I get a lot of, uh, a lot of calls uh, and emails about people who have seen the two introductory to XAML DNR TVs yep. that you and I did last year at PDC, Carl. Yeah, they were great. They've been very... Very widely, and used. also your your demo of the quintessential business application that uses WPF is is pretty much become a standard for people. Uh, to surprisingly, see. so to me, yeah. And mm. and that kind of relates to kind of my final final thing I I'd like to encourage people to do when they start making the move into this area because the the tendency people have is to say, well, this is from pretty much all the technologies we've worked on is. We've got a problem to solve. Let's do a prototype. Let's refine that prototype. Let's keep spinning until we've got the final thing. And I suppose that there's a pretty good-sized class of apps for which that still makes sense. But for a lot of applications, I'd like people to be more open to ideas. And I don't know if it's multiple prototyping themselves or whether it's looking at themes and packs from four different vendors and trying to find the navigation thing that's already been written that works well. But I'd like people to be more open. Depending on their level, that might express itself in different ways. But I'd like people to really open their minds to take advantage of what this technology really will do and not just spoof what they've always done in the past. Because if they do that, what value have they really gained from the shift? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, one, just one thing I wanted, I, that I'm pretty excited about from this conversation is listening to Billy talk about the interaction patterns. I've, it's, it's kind of like opened up a new area in my mind. I'm thinking that this is, this is like documenting these, like this idea of navigation and, and things like mm. that. This is very interesting to me. I, I need somebody out there to do that for me and send me a link. <laughs> okay. Nice. Yeah, I think we need some sessions, guys. The conferences are going to start talking about UI patterns. And how they're implementing WPF. And I think we ought to do this, uh, the four of us, on a regular basis, just as WPF evolves, to keep uh, keep keep up with it and see what you guys are doing. Thank you so much, uh, Mark Miller, Billy Hollis, and we'll see you next time. .NET rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.